Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God. And they ate and drank. And now we turn to the Gospel of Luke 22. Beginning at verse 14. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would give us an understanding of these signal events that took place the night before the cross. We pray this not only for our better understanding, but our deepened love 
for our Lord Jesus, who undertook all these things for us. In his gracious and good name we pray. Amen. Now the hour of Passover has come, the hour of the meal. And Jesus and the twelve young apostles recline around this low table in the upper room that's reserved for them. That upper room whose address, whose street address, you remember, had been such a closely guarded secret. Now at last everyone is gathered around the table. Everyone's in the right place at the right time with Judas Iscariot, we have reason to believe, rather irked at this lost opportunity that this private moment might have offered him to deliver up Jesus to the temple authorities. That would have been a perfect occasion because it was private. It was away from the crowds. Security had been such that Judas scarcely knew where they'd all be that evening before they got there. And, of course, you can't pass along to others what you don't know yourself. But if we could look into the mind of a betrayer this way, we can imagine he would be thinking, but no matter, really, I can still break away. I can still do some last-minute coordination, and the night, after all, is still young. So Judas bides his time for the first part of the meal. Now what I'd like to do is to describe for you the, uh, the ancient plan or format of the Passover meal. Basically, when everyone is present, resting on pillows around a low central table, the head of the household would take a cup of diluted wine, the first of four such cups that evening, and he pronounces over it the thanksgiving. This thanksgiving really consisted of two benedictions, one blessing God for the wine and a second blessing him for the return of this Passover and everything that that implied for God's providential care over the past year. Bless God for the wine. Bless God that we are here again after a year. And then that first cup was passed around the table. After the first cup, the head of the household rose ceremonially to wash his own hands. Jesus, who was the head of this particular household, takes the ancient ceremony, of course, off in an entirely new direction, when he rises instead to wash not his own hands, but the disciples' feet. Clearly at that stage, the old is beginning to pass away and something altogether new is being born. When the head of the household again seats himself after the washing, the supper dishes are brought to the table, and the head of the household 
dips some of the bitter herbs, such as horseradish, probably. He dips the bitter herbs into salt water or vinegar, speaks a blessing, partakes of it himself, and then passes the herbs around to others at the table. Next, he takes one of the unleavened loaves of bread and he breaks it and puts half of the broken loaf of bread aside as an after dish. He raises the plate holding the broken bread as he says, this is the bread of misery, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. All that are hungry, come and eat. All that are needy, come, keep the Passover. And at this point in the Passover service, a second cup would be filled and the youngest person present around the table, the youngest person inquires as to the meaning of all of this. The head of the household answers with a full description of the first Passover that is now being commemorated. He'd recount from Exodus chapter 12 the redemptive acts of that never-to-be-forgotten night of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. This second cup is raised twice with prayer and the singing of Psalms 113 and 114. Same numbering in the Hebrew Psalter as our own. Raised a third time in prayer, the second cup would then be drunk. Then the roasted Passover lamb is carved and eaten along with the unleavened bread. Everyone gets as much as he likes, but always they finish the lamb, not leaving any of the lamb until morning. This was the Passover meal proper, after which a third cup would be drunk. Following the meal, the family would sing Psalms 115 through 118, and a fourth cup would be drunk. And at that point, the Passover meal would be at an end, with the seven-day feast of unleavened bread still ahead of them. But that was the Passover ritual. And I describe this standard Paschal Supper so that against its backdrop, we might better understand the events of that last night of Jesus and his apostles together before the cross. Each of the four evangelists tells the story of that evening as it was known to him, so that together, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. Today, of course, we have Luke's account before us. Luke's careful research into the events of that night highlights two things in particular. The first thing impressed upon us as you look over our passage in Luke 22, the first thing impressed upon us is the Lord's longing for this Passover meal. The Lord's longing for it. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Earnestly. I've desired it. 
That's the polite, restrained English way of putting it. In New Testament Greek and the Lord's own Aramaic behind it, it comes across more like this. What he says is, with deepest longing, I longed to be here at table with you. With deepest longing. It's the absolute freedom and the emotional openness with which a bride and groom talk when they're alone together at last. I've prepared myself for this moment. I've made all these arrangements for it. I've thought it all through. I've re rehearsed this moment so many times in my head. I've longed for this sweet hour of closest fellowship with my bride, my church. I wonder sometimes whether ours has been a longing for him to match his for us. He longs for you, beloved. He longs for you. He longs to have fellowship with you, to commune with you. He longs for it. The second thing with which Luke in particular presents us is this matter of the coming kingdom. Once dimly represented in this Passover meal, the wheels of that glorious reign of God in this world roll on forward even that night with striking new revelations of his atoning love and his grace. If the Passover once spoke of deliverance, how much more the Lord's Supper now being instituted using that meal's after dish of broken bread and the fourth cup of wine. God is doing a new thing. From this night, even the glorious deliverance of the Passover, even that is eclipsed from this night, he supersedes with the new, the commemoration of the old. The rising of the morning sun, of course, puts the glory of the moon behind us. We see the moon no more when the sun is in the sky. Because the radiance that now surpasses and fills the whole sky. Whereas the moon had been there the night before. Now, there's an old saying that you've probably heard. It goes like this. It's always darkest just before the dawn. Jesus recognizes in the gathering darkness of the coming hours the imminent approach of a brand new day beyond it. And he's longed not only to be there that evening with his church, his bride, for the last ever Passover meals, much more he longs for the bright day that is just beyond it the new covenant administration of God's power and grace about to be unleashed by means of his own vicarious death. That was a very dark night. The day ahead would be brighter on account of what would take place at the hands of evil men. 
Jesus longs not only for her precious fellowship, the church's precious fellowship, he longs for her purchased freedom, her freedom, her redemption, the kingdom of God, not as something seen from afar, not as some dim pie-in-the-sky dream hoped for someday, but the kingdom of God as actually come with power. A kingdom the redeemed can experience and do experience beginning right here and right now. Not just at some indistinct point far off in the future, but before another week had passed, before another four or five days had passed. The kingdom and its power and its glory would be theirs. The kingdom of God truly is at hand. Here in the events of the next 72 hours or so, we're going to witness something that is genuinely new under the sun. This is something new. Solomon, in writing Ecclesiastes, would not have dreamed of such a new thing under the sun. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is something astonishing, something remarkable. It is something the world has never before seen because it represents cosmic victory. Cosmic victory. Victory of an infinitely higher order of magnitude than the pages of Scripture have yet recorded. And the Scriptures, up until this point, have recorded plenty of marvelous victories. The resurrection was going to eclipse them all. The victory at the Red Sea, wonderful as it was and wonderful as it is, pales almost in significance by comparison with this victory over sin and the grave. For nearly 1,500 years, the Passover has come around every spring with its powerful but by now very predictable message of how God delivered Israel ever so long ago into freedom. But this particular night, the one of which we read in Luke 22, this particular night of dark, cold, calculating human betrayal, this night launches the everlasting reign of a king who faced the enemy's death, who'd very soon taste of it himself, drinking it down to its dregs, and then rising from his own grave, triumph over it forevermore. It is defeated. Death is vanquished. And alive forevermore, he now chases down the last residual fear with which death tries to spook the Christian. His own death the very next day secures truly, completely, and permanently the blessed life of every single frightened, needy little one who trusts in him. It 
his resurrection from the dead, his victory over the grave comforts us. When we are on the lip of our own grave, So the Apostle Paul can actually mock the threatening growls of death. He taunts it. He taunts death, toothless old dog that death has become. You can bark at the sick and sorrowing, dying Christian all you like. The crucified and risen Christ renders you, death, harmless to the Christian. O grave, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Our king has come to vanquish you. You are vanquished. Now the Passover used to focus our attention almost entirely on the deeds of the past, didn't it? The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, instituted on the night in which he was betrayed, invites us not only to look back to the cross, but invites us to look forward as well, doesn't it? It's a coming kingdom, a kingdom yet ahead of us. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this covenant meal, he portrays his own death experientially that evening. He was already beginning to taste it. He was beginning to taste death. Within hours, the sorrows of the grave were going to nearly overwhelm him, wouldn't they? In the Garden of Gethsemane. But strengthened from on high, our Lord Jesus sees beyond his own death, through it, to the glorious kingdom that that death, his death, would purchase. And what kingdom is that exactly? What is it we're talking about? It's not a piece of ground. When you speak of the kingdom of God, it's not a piece of ground or real estate. It's not a piece of paper. The kingdom of God is an entirely new humanity. It's an entirely new humanity. An elect people of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue who are bought out of our slavery and brought out of our darkness into his marvelous light. Twice here he speaks of the kingdom of God both times as something not quite fully attained yet. Verse 16, I will not eat this Passover until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when might that fulfillment be? It's not far off the fulfillment of the ancient Passover meal, the redemption it foreshadowed for 1,500 years ever since Moses. Its fulfillment really was just a few hours off. Its fulfillment lay in the slaying of a spotless, unblemished lamb to secure the life of the firstborn. A lamb slain to purchase the lives of others. Cleanse out the old leaven. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, Paul tells the Corinthians. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
He is the Lamb foreshadowed by the thousands and thousands and thousands of unblemished Passover lambs before him. It was probably as the third cup was about to be passed around the table that when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This kingdom of which he speaks, it's a kingdom secured by his suffering. Which may seem to be a rather strange connection. A kingdom secured by or obtained by suffering. I don't know of any true parallel in all of history or all of literature. Any kingdom that is secured or purchased by the suffering and death of its king. It sounds very good. It sounds very romantic in a literary way. But what does it actually mean? Well, one thing it means is that the way to the throne on high led our king through a very deep and horrible, horrible valley. More of a pit, actually, a pit from which even King David himself couldn't escape. You remember what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. David died, and his grave is still with us. David hasn't risen from the dead. All go into this pit of death. None come out alive. None, that is, but he. None but the Christ. Here's how Paul describes the kingdom that's attained at the cost of Christ's vicarious suffering. It is a steep and steady drop into the pit, followed by a steep ascent out of it again. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the steep downward descent into the valley, into the pit. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When Moses at Mount Sinai read the book of the covenant to the people of Israel who had been purchased out of slavery in Egypt, we read that he also took the blood of those sacrificed animals and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
The death of Jesus Christ is the end of all those bloody sacrifices. The end of every sacrament of blood. What can we possibly add to the full atonement that he once for all made for sinners? What can we add to it? We're powerless to add the slightest thing but the grace of a thankful heart for what he has single-handedly accomplished. The vanquishing of sin, the vanquishing of death, the granting of life everlasting. Ours now is just to take in for our spiritual nourishment the things he offers us freely. He offers the bread of that after dish and he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the fourth cup and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would impress upon us the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ that great shepherd of the sheep who laid down his own life. No one has taken it from him, but he lay it down on behalf of his friends. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless your people gathered here now as together we move forward in this service and commemorate that death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the securing of the kingdom of God that it purchased for us. Grant these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.